Peter talks to the elders here. The elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder. Um, there are three words in the scripture that are used for the leadership of a church. The first one is elder, and the word is presbyter, presbytero, and we get Presbyterian from that because the Presbyterian church is governed by a group of men who are and women who are elders, and they make all the decisions, take care of all the money, all the spending, the hiring and the firing. They do all the business of the church. And so that's what it is to be a Presbyterian, basically. Um, the, the word elder is, an, is a word that's used frequently in the Old Testament. Um, when, when Moses uh, met Jethro in the desert, he was judging all two million people by himself. And Jethro said, that isn't right. And so he called the elders of Israel, and, and um, they became judges to help. So um, I want to say that I am very grateful for the leadership of First Baptist. These are godly men who take seriously the leadership that God has given them with. And I'm glad that none of them have, has a TV ministry. Now, there are good TV ministers, don't get me wrong, but I once heard a TV guy talk about um, how his 747 was too big for daily use. He needed a smaller jet to take people around, and he was raising money for that. Yeah. <laughs> Elders, uh, typically, it comes from a word that means the older, older people. Um, and that's what it typically is, although it, there's a, all of us know a thousand exceptions to that rule. We all know um, older people who are not wise, <laughs> and we all know younger people who have great wisdom. Uh, there's a scripture that talks about that when Paul is writing to Timothy. He, said, he says, don't let anybody put you down because of your youth. And then he tells him how to, how to stand. Apparently, Timothy was an elder while he was a youth. Um, but that doesn't change the general principle. Um, the, the second word that is used for the governing of a church is episkopos. And uh, that word is translated bishop sometimes. That's not a very good translation for it. It, it comes from two words. Um, it, it comes from the, the biblical word for above, and then it comes from a, a scopos, which we get scope from, and it means to look intently. And so it means to be an overseer. The, the word overseer is very close to what episkopos means. And, uh, and that's the elders uh, are supposed to be episkopos too. And then there's a word for, for pastor. And in Ephesians, uh, it says God gave some apostles some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastor-teachers, and that's the word um, poimenos, and that is the word for shepherd also. <clears throat> so Jesus, when he talks about, when he said, I am the great shepherd, he used the word poim poim poimenos, and it can mean either shepherd or pastor. Um, you know, interestingly enough, I looked up the dictionary for pastor this last week, and I was surprised to find that the first two meetings were what we typically think of as a pastor, but the third meaning for pastor in English was shepherd, <laughs> somebody that took care of sheep. I didn't know that. Um, so uh, all three of these words are used to describe, it's not three different people, it's used to describe uh, one group of people. If, you'll, if you can put up the first slide, the Acts 20 slide, I'll show you this. So this is Paul, and he's finishing his third missionary journey, and he's uh, coming to Ephesus. Ephesus was a very special place. Ephesus in Turkey right now it would be uh, what we call Turkey. And Ephesus was a very special place to Paul. He spent three years there, and he developed the church, and it was a, a wonderful church that... that uh, at Paul's time. And so when he's coming to Ephesus, he's on his way to Jerusalem, and he, he doesn't have time to go to the city of Ephesus, so he calls 
all of the elders to come to the coast so that he can meet with them. And verse 17 says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him on the coast. And then uh, verse 28, after he has done a sermon, he says, Pay, care pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock which, which in, to, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. You see the word overseer there and you see the word to care. That's the word poimenos. That's the word pastor. Pastor the church. Shepherd the church. Um, and so you see all three words are meant to be for one, one person. Each leader of the church is supposed to be an elder. He's supposed to oversee the church and he's supposed to be a shepherd. Now why do you have three words for one person? Well, you have the first word, elder, is a word that has to do with the character of the, past, of, the, of the pastor. If you read Titus where it talks about the characteristics of, of, a, of a elder, it, it says that he is to be a one-woman man and there's a long description. Um, he can't be a drunkard, he can't be one that looks for a lot of money, <laughs> he can't be uh, a striker, he can't be a, a one that gets in fights, he has to possess sound doctrine. So the elder word has to do with not what he does, but who he is. The overseer, as you would expect, has to do with what he does. It has to do with taking care of the financial, the, all the ins and outs uh, of the chairs and everything, whatever, you know, they met in homes, so that would be, that would be difficult to try and get everything together. Um, the third word is pastor, and that word is, that, as I said, means shepherd. Um, in many cases, the, the teaching uh, elder is the lead elder in a church. And the scripture says uh, that that person, the one who is teaching, should get double honor, which means not only respect, but it means pay. And so uh, they need the financial suspect. Uh, now, a pastor must have a close relationship with Jesus. He's got to lead the congregation in that. He's an under-shepherd to the chief shepherd in, in verse 4. Uh, is it? Yeah, when the chief shepherd comes. That's what uh, a pastor is supposed to do. Um, Paul says that he, that he wants to share in the sufferings of Christ. And a pastor has to lead in doing that. Now, what is it? Why does Paul say he wants to share in the sufferings of Christ? This is the verse. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship and sharing of his suffering becoming like him in his death. How do we as Christians share in the suffering of Christ? Well, the Bible says that we as Christians and our pastor should lead us in this, and he does, but any pastor should lead the church in suffering. The Bible says we're supposed to take up our cross every day and, and follow Christ to the hill of Golgotha and, and be crucified. Uh, that requires a lot of internal suffering because, you see, I don't want to do that, frankly. I would rather be comfortable. But you see, Christ didn't die to make us comfortable. He died to make us holy. And for you and I to get to be as holy as we can be on this earth, we'll be holy when we get to heaven. Praise the Lord. <laughs> but to be holy on this earth requires an internal struggle that is nothing but suffering. If you'll lean back and listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 7 about his struggle with what we're talking about. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sin sinful nature. You see, we're saved 
and our sinful nature doesn't cry out against us to God because we stand in the righteousness of Christ. But we still, every one of us here, has a sinful nature. Yesterday, we were at my grandson's third birthday party. And you don't have to look very hard at a three-year-old to see sinful nature. <laughs> it's all about me. <laughs> and boy, that kid can squawk when it doesn't get it. <laughs> You know, and that doesn't change when we become Christians. We're delivered from it, but we still have the sinful nature within us. It's there. Paul says, I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do, but it's the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who does it, it's sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my, in my inner being, I delight in God's love. But, it, but another, I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am, who will rescue me from this body of death. And if it ended there, it would be pretty grim, folks. <laughs> but one of the greatest verses in the whole Bible is eight, chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Amen. I mean, what a wonderful verse. That's about my favorite verse in the whole Bible. Uh, but you see, to do what God wants us to do is something that requires an internal struggle. And, and our pastor, and any pastor, needs to lead the congregation in that struggle. And, you know, I know, uh, I know there are people in this church that changed Greg's diapers. <laughs> and, you know, I'm sure that you've seen Greg grow. And I've lived here six years, and I can see him grow in, in the six years that we've lived here, and I'm grateful for that. Um, that's something that we all have to struggle with. Um, I'm not really nervous. Somebody told me this morning, if you're preaching and you're nervous, it's God's trying to beat the truth out of you. <laughs> so uh, that's what a pastor must do. And then it says, uh, it, it says um, the pastors are to lead us. In, in, in all of these things, and we must, and, he, and a pastor must do them not because he has to, but because he wants to. Um, Paul said, uh, don't be under compulsion. He said, I'm under compulsion to preach. He said, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Um, he, he has to be a person, it says here, that is not for honest gain. And he has to be eager to serve. You know, Jesus said, I came to seek and serve that which was lost. Isn't that amazing? The God of the universe. Not lording it over people, it says. Um, we were in Israel a couple of years ago, and we visited a Bedouin camp. And it was very interesting because while we were there, you know, they had camels to ride. We... <laughs> Porsche got on a camel, I got to tell you, that's pretty strange. <laughs> and I did too. And you get up there and it's not like a horse, you're way high and it's real strange. I'm glad that we don't ride on camels. Um, but when I was there, I saw a shepherd. I'd never seen a shepherd before. And it was a boy of about 14, maybe 15. And he was wearing sandals and, a, and a, he had modern clothes on, but he was tending about 14 or 15 sheep, and he was walking um, behind them, and he had a stick, 
And so, you know, sheep are notorious for wandering away. He would move them back. He would call them first, and then he would move them back, back in. And the place that we were at was a, a place that was barren. I mean, it was like a sand dune. And that shepherd was taking those sheep to some place where he knew there was grass. I couldn't see any grass, but he knew. And he was taking them to grass, and he was taking them to where, to where they could get water. You see, that's what a pastor is supposed to do. He's supposed to, to care and shepherd the, the flock of Christ. And someday we'll stand before the great shepherd. Second point is that we need God's people to follow the, follow the leader, basically. Um, Young, uh, verse 5, young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. Um, I'm very glad for this verse because it says young men. And it doesn't, that means most of us are free. <laughs> I mean, we don't have to obey. Oh, yes, we do. <laughs> Amen, somebody. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it says, all of you, clothe yourself with humility. So... Uh, we have got a godly leadership, and we've got following people. To make that work, we have to have humility. And Paul says here in, in, in verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Uh, the word clothe yourself is the word for this, the cloth that a ser servant wrapped around his waist when he was doing his master's bidding and it reminds us of Jesus Christ the Last Supper when he wrapped a towel around him and washed the disciples feet and that's what we're supposed to do we're supposed to to clothe ourselves with humility um, let's define humility if you have your Bibles turn with me to the second chapter of the book of Philippians this is very famous chapter, and I know you've all heard it before, but it's an incredible definition. Paul starts off the chapter by saying, is there anything good about Christianity? And he has four rhetorical questions there. And of course, the answer is that, it's, that Christianity is encouraging, and Christianity is something that everybody should have. Um, and then he says, uh, he gives a definition of humility. Verses 1 and 2 are the rhetorical questions. And then in verse 3, it says, Don't let petty things uh, happen in your life. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Uh, you know, as human beings, we can be pretty self-centered. We sang about giving all our ambitions to, to Christ this morning. Uh, that's something that we need to do. Uh, it's easy to want to climb the ladder, stepping on people on the way up, but it says don't do that. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. That's the second point. Consider other people better than yourselves. Uh, in the 70s, I don't know if many of you watched Carol Burnett. We watched Carol Burnett pretty religiously. <laughs> and uh, she sang a song once that went like this. And for those of you that have sat next to me in church, don't worry, I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> and I got a chuckle from, <laughs> from Seth, rightly so. But he, she sang a song that goes, We belong to a mutual admiration society. Now, that song, if you choose, change a few words, could be a hymn. <laughs> because, you see, that's what's supposed to happen in a church. We're supposed to consider each other better than ourselves. We should sing that to everyone, at least in our heads, in the church. You know. uh, then it says, the third point is, each of you should look out for the interests of others. There's a man that used to come to this church, and I'm not going to tell you his name. It would embarrass him to death if I told you his name, but he moved to Winslow, Arizona. You don't know who that is. 
And uh, he was a, a real example to me because he was always visiting people. He was always talking to people. He was always loving to people. He was here recently for two days or three days. And during that time, that very short time, he was helping people in the church with their problems. I mean, helping clean out garages and, I mean, <laughs> that's what we need to be doing. Uh, we should look out for the interests of everybody else in this church. Not only for our own interests. That's, that's what we're made to do. I mean, we're, in our sinful nature, we are interested in what we are interested in. And it's very easy to not be interested in anybody else. Uh, humility is not putting yourself down. I want you to understand that right away. Um, there's a verse that the NIV translates in Galatians uh, 6.4. It says, each one of you should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. It's the comparing himself. I mean, there's nothing wrong with feeling good about what you've done. But it's comparing yourself that causes real problems in anybody's life. Because either you're going to look at somebody and say, wow, he's doing it much better than me, and then you'll be downcast and discouraged, or I'm better than him, <laughs> and that makes pride. Uh, and that's our central problem. Uh, I have a friend who has a, a shirt. Uh, you all know the song Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. He's got a shirt that says, I'm the wretch the song talks about. <laughs> but you see, in Christ, we're not wretches. In Christ, we are sons of God. And, you know, that's the only problem I have with that song. Uh, we all were wretches, of course before we were saved, and so I can understand that a little bit. But it's not putting yourself down to be humble. It's lifting other people up. Um, part of the genius of being a human being is that we compare things. That's why we're able to get to the moon, because we said, you know, I can do that better. I can do this better, I can do that better, and we do it. And because we compare things, we are able to accomplish incredible things. I mean, we all drive, drove to church this morning in vehicles that are, I mean, way beyond anybody's idea of what a car was when I was in high school. I mean, the car that I drove, my parents' car in, in high school, uh, had no options. Well, it had dead. The heater was an option on that car. <laughs> uh, but it didn't have a radio, didn't have air conditioning. Um, we compare things and we make them better, but that can also lead to our downfall if we compare ourselves to other people. So we shouldn't do that. Um, this is what C.S. Lewis says about humility. There's one vice of which no one in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in somebody else. I would like to, um, I'm sorry, I lost my place here. I can tell you the first step to uh, being humble. The first step is to realize that not one, that everyone is proud. If you think that you ha are not conceited, it, means that you are very conceited indeed. Uh, you see, humility comes from a proper understanding of God. It's God that has given you and I anything that we have. Why should we be proud of what we have or what we've done? We shouldn't be proud of that because it's given to us. God could have given those things to somebody else. Everything is a gift. Whatever we have has been given to us by God and whatever we have We'll, we'll have to stand before God one day and tell him what we did with that. Um, so we, we can't be humble. I mean, we can't be proud about it. Watchman Nee tells a story that I read this last week, and it absolutely floored me. It talks about a poor 
rice farmer in China who uh, filled his patties every morning with water that he had to pump into his patties. And uh, then he, when he came back later in the afternoon to check out his rice, he would notice that his neighbor, who lived down the hill from him, had opened his dikes so that the water from his paddy went down to his neighbor's paddy. And he tried to ignore it for a while, but he couldn't, finally he couldn't ignore it any longer. And so he found a, a, a good Christian believer and they started to pray for this thing. What should we do? How do we handle this? They came with this, up, up with this idea. Early in the morning, the rice farmer got up and he watered his neighbor's patties and then he watered his own. That's humility. That's what God wants us to do, to be concerned for the other people. Christ gave us the, the best illustration of this, as I mentioned earlier, when he washed the disciples' feet. Now, I have to tell you something about the streets of any Judean town at the time. The streets of Jerusalem or any Judean town were not paved except where the Romans were. They were dirt. And not only that, they were pounded with continual traffic. So there was dust about this big on all of the streets. And not only that, the dust was, there was something else in the dust because everybody brought animals through. And so have you ever walked through a cow pasture? So you would do that every once in a while in the street. And not only that, but the, all that manure would eventually dry out and become part of the dust so that the dust that you were picking up on your feet was not only dirt, but it was manure. And the disciples wore sandals. Now we were in Jerusalem at a cool time of the year and it was hot. <laughs> now the people there didn't have two pairs of shoes. They, they were subsistence kind of kind of people living real close to the edge. Uh, and so they would wear their pair of sandals over and over and over again. Have you ever done that with a sandal? They get real stinky. And not only that, but because you had to carry water in a earthenware jug for maybe four or five blocks or half a mile maybe, you didn't really wash too much. And so your feet were sweaty in the hot climate, picking up all that dust and manure, and they came into the Last Supper, and nobody wanted to wash everybody's feet. You see, they did a thing in that, in, in that culture that we don't do. I've never been to a place where, when I went to, to dinner at their house, they had me sit down and took off my shoes and washed my feet. But you did it then, because otherwise the place really stunk. And not only that, but these people didn't sit on chairs. They laid down. And so um, you remember at the Last Supper, John was laying right on Jesus' breast, uh, chest, and he whispered in Jesus' ear, who's the deceiver? It's not me, is it? And uh, so the, but their feet were real close to their faces. And so you can imagine what the Last Supper was like. And not only that, but Luke tells us that in the middle of the Last Supper, the Last Supper uh, and at the time of Christ was an elaborate fair with object lessons and readings and prayers, and you drank drank uh, the wine and you took and you took a piece of bread, and it was very symbolic of of uh, the Jewish culture. Uh, Luke says that after Jesus had talked about this cup is the new covenant, this is the, the blood of the covenant. And after he had taken the bread, it says there arose um, a, a dispute among the disciples. Do you know what they were talking about? Who's gonna be the greatest? Who didn't wash anybody's feet? You know, it wasn't me to wash everybody's feet. And the word, <laughs> The word that is used there is only used once in the New Testament. The word is love strife. <laughs> the disciples were loving strife after Christ had 
talk to them. And so at that point, Christ, having done the bread and the wine, hearing the disciples loving to fight, took a towel and wrapped it around himself. And now this is the Lord of glory. This is the creator God of the universe. This is the only perfect person who's ever lived on the earth. He washed their feet. He showed them how they should act. Not in who, who's the greatest, it's, it's who's the most humble. That's an incredible lesson to us. And I, I'm stunned by that every time I read it. Um, there's a, a couple reasons why we should be humble, it says here in First Peter again. Did you ever do Bible quizzes when you were... I've lost the ability to find things quickly. <laughs> there we go. Okay. Why should we humble ourselves? There's, there's a couple of reasons here why we should humble ourselves. Um, it says, first of all, in uh, verse 5, God opposes the proud. You want God opposing you? We need to be humble. You remember in the Old Testament, Nebuchadnezzar uh, was a great king. He was the first world ruler. He ruled all of the known world pretty much at that time. And so, and he built incredible things, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Uh, and he was a, a, a very important person at the time. And he was walking on his roof, roof one, one day and he said in his heart, is this not the great Babylon that I have built as a royal residence for my might and for my power and for the glory of my majesty. And the scripture says that while the, verse, the words were still in his mouth, God struck him. And he became very much like an animal, eating grass for seven years. And his nails grew like talons, and his hair was like a mane. And after seven years, God restored his sanity to him. But you see, that's God opposing pride. And we need to be very careful because pride is our bread and butter. I mean, it's there in all of us. And we need to very, be very careful that we're working on that because um, God opposes the proud. Then the next thing it says in verse 5b is that God gives grace to the humble. Now, I can think of nothing better than to have an infinitely powerful and loving God give grace to me. He gives grace to the humble to those who humble himself. God doesn't favor us for our brains, for our wealth, for our um, intelligence. He favors us for none of the things that we find wonderful. He favors us for our humility. Uh, that's something that we need to work on. Then verse six, it says, when he's ready, he lifts up humble people. Uh, I want to show you my favorite portion of scripture in maybe in, in cer certainly in 2 Corinthians. If you turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This is a story about Moses. And when Moses was uh, leading the children of Israel, he would go into a tent and he would meet with God. And because of the glory of God that he met there, when, his, when he came out, his face shone. It was light. I mean, there was a man with an ever-ready battery. <laughs> I mean, he didn't need a flashlight. He, his face shone and it scared people. And so he put a veil over his face so that people wouldn't be scared of what, he's, of what he was saying. And in 2 Corinthians 3.15, it says, Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil, speaking of the veil that Moses put on his, on his face, 
covers their heart. But whoever turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, who with unveiled faces, all reflect the Lord's glory. So as we gaze at the Lord, as we do that in fellowship, in prayer, and reading the Bible, and turning our lives over to him, giving him our ambitions and, and everything that we have, listen to what it says. We reflect the Lord's glory, and we're being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, which is the Spirit. I mean, what a, what a wonderful thing it is to have the veil that we all wear taken away, and we look at God, and as we do what he wants us to do, as we come into fellowship with him, we're changed from glory to glory to glory to glory. And one day we'll be in glory with him, and the process will not have to happen anymore because we'll be perfect. We'll be totally in line with what God wants us to do. But as we, as we humble ourselves before him, he changes us from glory to glory, and we're transformed into the likeness of Christ. What a story. Uh, now, this is a difficult thing. And it's, oh, let me, let me go back to 1 Peter, if I can find it. 1 Peter 5. Um, it's, it's interesting. It says uh, in verse 7, Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Um, uh, let me read this to you out of the New American Standard Bible. New American Standard Bible is the most accurate uh, translation of the, of the English, of the uh, biblical languages, but it's kind of wooden, and so a lot of people don't use it. But this is what it says. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Casting, and then it's a small c. I want you to remember that. It's casting with a small c, all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. What that means is that the casting is part of humility. And as we cast all our cares on him, we say, okay, God, I can't do this. I can't, I can't do this thing that I'm worrying about, so I'm going to give it to you. Uh, George Mueller used to, not the Mueller from the report. <laughs> this is a guy that had an orphanage, and he was a tremendous prayer warrior. Uh, and if you haven't read his stories, it's great. But he told a story about a, uh, a young man, a boy who was carrying a real heavy load, walking along the road, and a, a man in a wagon uh, stopped and said, would you like a ride? And so the boy got into the wagon with the man, and, uh, but he still kept his pack on. And the man drove on, and then he said, well, son, you can, you can take your pack off. You don't have to carry it. And the young boy said, well, I don't want to make your horses carry too much. Well, that's what we do with our burdens. We carry them even though we know that God is also carrying them because he cares for us. And yet we continue to carry our burdens. We need to take that thing off and let God take it. Now, it's not, not, it's not easy. It's very difficult to do this. It was difficult for the people in the Old Testament. Uh, you remember... Moses was 40 years in Egypt and then 40 years on the backside of the desert being a shepherd. And God spoke to him in, uh, in a fiery bush. And uh, Moses didn't want to go and do what God asked him to do. And so he had five excuses. I can't do this. I can't talk. Uh, what, they won't believe me. You know. And God answered every one of his questions. And finally, the fifth objection that Moses had was, send somebody else. <laughs> and it says that God began to get angry at him. And so he decided to do what God wanted him to do. And so he started down to, Moses, uh, to Egypt. And, you know, I, I wonder if Moses, what his frame of mind was at that time, because he hadn't circumcised his kids. To a Jew, you might give up everything and be eating bacon and pork, but you're still doing circumcision. That's the last thing that goes. 
in it from, from the Jewish religion. And Moses hadn't circumcised his children. And God met with him in a very explicit way, and his wife circumcised the children and threw them at Moses' feet and said, you're truly a husband of blood to me. I don't think she wanted to circumcise her children. But you see, at that point, I don't believe Moses was trusting God very much. Um, and then when he came to the Red Sea with Pharaoh charging up his rear with huge, the rear of the Israelites with, with many chariots, he says to the Israelites, stand and see the deliverance of the Lord. But it says that God said to him, Moses, and, it, and God rebukes him. He says, why are you crying out to me? Cross the river, cross the, cross the Red Sea. So uh, at that point, Moses was still having uh, difficulty putting all of his burdens on Christ. And then uh, Numbers 11, uh, Moses is, is angry at God. Oh, let me read it to you. It's, it's really amazing. Whenever dead times happens on TV, I think there's a, somebody that just got fired. <laughs> well, at the end of the sermon, you can fire me. <laughs> okay, Moses says to God, they're, they're grumbling because they don't have, have food. And God takes, God takes murmuring very, very seriously. And uh, we need to understand that when we murmur, that is when we gossip and when we complain uh, about what God has given us, he, he takes that very seriously. Uh, and But Moses is grumbling. He says, why have you brought this trouble on your servant? Speaking to God. What have I done to despise you, to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive the people? Did I give them birth? Why do you want me to carry them in their arms as nursing, as, as nursing an, an infant to the land you promised on oath to, these, to their forefathers. Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, give us meat to eat. I cannot carry these people on, my, on myself. My burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you are going to treat me, put me to death right now. I have, if I have found favor in your eyes, do not let me face my own ruin. Wow. <laughs> and God says, well, God said, first of all, okay, get the elders. And I'll put some of my, uh, some of your power and leadership on the elders, and they can help you carry the people. And then he says, God says, and this is a wonderful verse. He says, uh, you're going to have quail as much as you can eat, more than you can eat tomorrow. And Moses says, uh, if you would would give all the meat, all the fish, and all of the oceans, we wouldn't have enough food for this multitude of people and God says is my arm too short and by nightfall there's quail knee-deep and they had meat and Moses hadn't learned yet to cast his burdens upon the Lord uh, but later he learned and you can read about it in Psalm 90 which is the only Psalm that, Mo that Moses wrote it talks about how he learned to trust the Lord and all the ways that he learned to trust um, Elijah was the same way. There's only, you know, the two places in the Bible where there's, in the Old Testament, where there's a lot of miracles center around Moses and, and Elijah. There were other miracles sprinkled in between, but that's where the majority of the, of the miracles are, uh, with Moses and with Elijah. And you know the story of Elijah going to Mount Carmel and calling down fire from heaven, and then... Uh, and then Jezebel said, you're going to die by sundown uh, because he killed all of her prophets. And uh, so at that point, uh, Elijah starts running. And he runs and runs and runs. And finally, God meets his physical needs. 
and then uh, and then it says uh, Moses cries out to God and he says he says this twice he says listen I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty he's feeling sorry for himself and when you and I feel sorry for ourselves, it rots our souls <laughs> we just cannot do that but listen to what listen to what Elijah said he said I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty the Israelites have rejected your covenant broken down your altars and all the prophets are put to death by the sword I am the only one left woe is me he didn't say that that was me and now they're trying to kill me too and he says that twice to God because um, he hadn't learned yet to cast his burdens on God and so God you know the story God met him with a huge powerful wind that tossed the rocks around and from the cave where he was watching and, and seeing it and then an earthquake and then a fire came through like we've had recently <laughs> and uh, he says I've been very zealous for the Lord after that um, a still small voice came to him and, and, and started talking to him and he did the same thing I've been very zealous for the Lord and he repeated the same thing because he had this little rant about not trusting God all memorized and so the Lord uh, did three things for Elijah he gave him a job he gave him a friend and uh, he said listen you're not all alone I've reserved 7,000 people in Israel that haven't bowed down to Baal so uh, when we get discouraged that same formula works with us we need to find a job that God wants us to do and we need to rely on our friends and we need to understand <clears throat> that we're not alone that there are many many people throughout the world that are doing a whole lot worse than we are in terms of suffering uh, the suffering we have is very small Abraham the man of faith you know it says uh, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness but he had trouble trusting God too, trusting God with his worries twice once before uh, that verse where it says Abraham trusted God and once after he came to a king and uh, and he and he, uh, he he pawned his wife off as his sister so that he wouldn't get killed because he thought the king would want to uh, marry his sister marry his wife actually and when God intervened the king said why did you do this to me and Abraham learned to trust God we can see that in the last part of his life where God said take your son your only son and sacrifice him and it says that Abraham knew that God could raise his son from the dead it says that in the book of Hebrews and so he he trusted God even to taking a knife and plunging it into his son's chest he trusted God and we can learn to trust God too it's just that it's not very easy the second thing it says in first Peter it says casting all it says humble yourselves by casting all your care on him the second thing it says is uh, resist the, the devil you know uh, what that means is that you and I don't have to be the devil's lunch uh, it says first of all be self-controlled um, how difficult that is how difficult is not you know uh, not to get angry um, my grandsons were with us this summer and I have to confess to you that there were a time or two that I got angry at him and uh, I pulled over to the side of the road and said not another word you guys because they were doing what the disciples were doing they were fighting <laughs> so we drove home in silence but I was angry and I had to repent for that uh, of that and we all get get angry we um, we we do that and we can be judgmental too we can look down our long noses at other people and uh, we can be rash you remember Jesus said I'm gonna to go to the cross I'm gonna die and Peter 
uttered two very words that are opposite. He said, no, Lord, <laughs> you're not going to do that. Now, how can you say no to your Lord? But he did. He was rash. Um, he, they, they were, the disciples were also impatient. You know, uh, one time they saw somebody else prophesying that wasn't part of them, and they said, well, should we call down fire on them? <laughs> we can be very impatient. It says we need to be alert. I used to work with Campus Crusade, and I was at Arrowhead Springs one summer. And uh, Arrowhead Springs is in a very dry part of California. And uh, we were, uh, there was a low wall about this high, and there were a lot of people, it was dinner time, so there were a lot of people coming in and out. And on that wall was a coiled rattlesnake. Um, and people were walking by it without seeing it. You know, I killed a snake, but we have to be alert because the devil is very prone to our weaknesses, very prone to use our weaknesses against us. Uh, I don't know if you saw recently a picture of an 11-year-old girl that got too close to a buffalo in Yellowstone, and the buffalo grabbed her and threw her 15 feet into the air. Now, fortunately, she wasn't hurt bad, and she was hurt a little bit. But she wasn't hurt bad. Uh, she was taken to the hospital and released. But Satan can't defeat us. He can be resisted. The scripture says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So the devil is going to tell you this temptation is too big for you. You've fallen for this thing many times before. He whispers that in our ears. You're, you're, you're fried. Just yield to it. We don't have to, because we can resist the devil. And it says he will flee from us. Uh, Satan wants to get us guilty. Uh, he's a master of intimidation. It says he's like a roaring lion. Do you know why a lion roars? It's to intimidate. Let me tell you about a lion's roar. How many miles away do you think you can hear a, royal, a lion when he roars, an African lion when he roars? A mile? Two miles? You can hear him five miles away. The roar that comes out of his mouth is 114 decibels. That's really loud. Uh, and he tries to intimidate us. He tries to, you know, uh, all the shootings that, that, that have been going on, it's not because of mental illness, I don't think. I think it, there's three causes of, of, of these things. They, these guys have no hope. They think there's nothing for them. They think that there will never, it will never get any, any better, and that's Satan whispering in their ear. They also typically have a revenge motive, and the Bible says, don't seek revenge. Give it to God. Let him uh, seek revenge. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And the third thing that I think that they believe is that life is not worth living anymore. So I'm just going to go and end it. Uh, and all of that is Satan talking to us. And he'll talk to you too. And he talks to me. Now, it's not Satan that's talking to us. It's one of his minions. And I'm not talking about that movie. <laughs> uh, Satan has a lot of angels that fell with him when when he fell and became demons. And uh, so I, I think it's the demons have been very well trained. You know, the Bible talks about ranks of, 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 of Satan at the top and then principalities and powers and, and a whole range of, of demons that are, are there and they're there. And they whisper to us um, and we can, res we can resist them Satan is very good at rationalizing, getting us to rationalize, to say, oh, this isn't so bad, or everybody's doing this thing, or just once more and I'll quit. Uh, most of the time, we're hearing the roar of Satan's lion. We don't have to hear that. We can resist him, and he'll flee from us. He uses our past against us. Satan takes us and puts us in a pit. We worry about finances. We worry about our children, grandchildren. We worry about 
dumb mistakes that we've made. Uh, and the devil can be very accurate. He can use facts and arguments against us. He can make good sense. Uh, and we can swallow hook, line, and sinker. Uh, the scripture says that God redeems our life from the pit. He says we've been rescued from a dungeon in Colossians. We don't have to be there. We can resist Satan. That Satan is resist resistible. Uh, we need to stand firm. Everyone we, we see in the church is going through the same stuff. And then in verse 10, it describes God. God is all grace. Grace is the word for giving. When a Hebrew person met another Hebrew person in the, in the, in the scriptural times, he said, Shalom. But a Greek person, when he met somebody else, he would say, Karas. And that's the word for grace. And it means, may you be given everything wonderful. That's what, that's what God is. He's the one who gives everything wonderful, who's called us into his glory. You know, can you imagine what it's going to be like in heaven? The glory that's going to be there. Uh, it'll, be, it'll, be, it'll be wonderful. And I, you know, I'm not ready to go right now. <laughs> but I am looking forward to it. It'll be great. It says our suffering will soon be over. You know, we're going to look back on this life and see it as something very, very, very different than what it is. Can you imagine going to a castle and the castle has everything that you possibly could want? It has a room for a library. It has a wonderful dining hall with a, a world-renowned chef, and it has a billiards room, it has a swimming pool, it has all of this stuff, and you're on the porch. We're on the porch right now. What we're going to do is we're going to one day, when Jesus Christ comes, or when, or when we die, we're going to get to, to see the rest of the castle. I mean, what we're in right now, if you put it in a book, we're in the foreword, and the, and the whole story is before us. We're just seeing a little part of what it is, and we'll be, uh, the suffering will soon be over, uh, and God will restore and strengthen and make firm and steadfast us. <clears throat> Peter closes with a very interesting little note here, and I'll close with this. And like Greg says, you know what it means when a pastor says he's closing? Sit back. She who is in Babylon, verse 13, chosen together with you, sends you her, her greeting, and so does my son Mark. <clears throat> now, this is the Mark that wrote the gospel. This is the Mark that split Paul and Barnabas from their first missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas did their first missionary journey up through the middle of Turkey. They came back. They wanted to go to a, on a second missionary journey, and they had taken Mark with them, but Mark had deserted him in the middle of Turkey. And Paul said, no, I'm not taking that guy with us. And, and Barnabas said, I'm, he, he needs, you know, he's, he's rescuable. He can be helped. And uh, Paul says, not, on, not a chance. And they, it says that they had a heated argument. And uh, they split. And from the second missionary journey, Paul took Silas with him. And uh, the third missionary journey also. But Paul and Barnabas were never together again because of John Mark. And so um, in, in uh, oh, I've, I can't remember where it is. It says, Paul, one of his letters says, bring um, Mark with you because he's helpful to my ministry. So he restored Mark, or Barnabas restored Mark, and Paul said, you know, I was wrong about this guy. He was redeemable. Bring him to me. He's helpful in my ministry. And here Peter says, uh, Mark, who is my son? And Mark wrote the gospel of, of Mark. You know, there are two disciples that wrote gospels and two that didn't. Mark and Luke weren't disciples. Um, but Mark, Peter wrote Mark, helped Mark, told Mark all the stories, and Mark wrote them down. And that's a, a wonderful way to see in this book. I'm very grateful for that. So 
what we need to learn is we need godly leadership. And then all of us need to be humble and we need to resist the devil. And if we can do those things, you know, a lot of things are simple, but not easy. That's two very simple things, but very difficult to do. If we can do those things, then our church will function as it's supposed to function. Would you join with me in prayer?